I'm Andy. And I'm Lev. And you're listening to Snakes in the Garden. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us for another episode of Snakes in the Garden. Uh, I wanted to start this episode off by saying some thanks to you, Andy. Um, yeah, I love the I love the face that you're making at me right now. Um, <laughs> I didn't see this coming. <laughs> Um, it has been really powerful and significant to me, especially knowing all the endeavors that your professional and personal life is embarking upon. Maybe you're going to talk about some of those today, uh, but like witnessing your growth and your power and your intellect in the world, uh, and seeing what you're doing and thinking, man, this is so cool. And also in the same of you looking at me and having this deep respect for me and wanting to collaborate with me in the same way that you want to collaborate deeply with all these people that you have extreme respect and care for just makes me feel extremely seen and valued. And oh my goodness. I know, I know. And th- there's like a caveat to this, right? Like something... Oh, no, yeah, I know. Um, you know, it's some of my work to make sure that I'm not defining my own self-worth by just the viewpoints of the people that I find important right like i have an inherent self-worth i know that i'm good at shit um but i get that i get what you mean and and i i totally agree with that idea that we don't want to anchor our sense of self-worth in the opinions of others and you've always struck me as a strong advocate of not needing that from other people yeah i'm not trying to interrupt you i just wanted to feed that back to you no not at all it's a it's a tricky dichotomy right because we get all this messaging of like it doesn't matter what other people say about us and so and so but at the same time like being seen and understood and witnessed and valued by others is an innate human need it's an innate human need. It occurs in the evolved brain, in the in the neocortex. It's how we lead people from from states of dysregulation and discontrol to capacities of self regulation. So yeah, yeah, validation works. It, valid, it it works when we do it to ourselves, and it works when we do it to others. It's why it's so fundamental in care and treatment settings and. And why it's so fundamental to relationship healing. Love occurs in relationship. Growth mm-hmm. occurs in relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, Laura Moss, my partner with CCIS, talks a lot about that. But again, not trying to <laughs> no. blow up the intro. I didn't know you were going to get into this so quickly. And I'm always inspired. Gotcha. By so yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Another reason that I was thinking about that, and I, I love the connection to embracing needs and values innate human needs and values as a strategy i there's some interesting stuff there and i would love to get into that a little bit more uh but a thing that i've been talking about recently with a friend of mine is this idea of the hero's journey and we did talk a little bit about this last time uh, but i'll just briefly review this this story archetype like basically this is a way that a lot of stories are structured especially when you talk about like your ancient greek myth but it shows up a lot now too uh you have this idea of a person Uh, Maybe they're living in like a tiny little village and at the outskirts of the village there is some forbidden zone Maybe this like dark forest that you're not supposed to step into because it's dangerous Um, You could even use like a religious metaphor and say that you grew up in maybe some religious tradition that forbids you from Having a certain type of human experience or consuming a certain type of media like exploring the word world in a particular way It's forbidden. It's dangerous and the hero in question steps into that 
dangerous unknown space. And in this dangerous unknown space, they meet a teacher figure, a, a wizard, uh, an instructor. And the presence of this person is such that they say to the hero, welcome, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm ready to show you the world. Um, it's very open, it's very welcoming. And through the support of this wizard person, the hero acquires something. It could be great riches, it could be knowledge, it could be, you know, really anything, physical, metaphorical. You know, it could just be self-confidence, something as simple as that. And after he has gone on this journey to attain this thing, the end of the story is a return. And the return can be he comes back to his village and shares the wealth. Uh, the return can be that they just go back home with a new view of the world that enhances their experience. The return there of was the a prodigal return. son. There was a so return, to speak, yeah. so to speak. And the prodigal son archetype <laughs> is a totally different one. It's really funny that you brought that up. Um, but when I was talking about this with my friend, I was really struggling with this idea because I'm like, man, I can't identify too many teachers in my life. I don't know who those people are for me. They certainly weren't my parents. And although I've met a lot of people through whom I have learned things, that figure, that particular person who is wise and welcoming and sharing of knowledge didn't, didn't hit me right away. And you were the second person I thought of that fit that archetype oh my for me. And I just remember, so Andy and I met in a care and services setting, and I remember feeling so fucking out of my depth in that place and just constantly at odds with my own sense of confidence and ability. And here I walked into this space and there's this motherfucker, Andy, who is possibly the most over-articulate human <laughs> I've ever met, who's one of my teachers, who just like walks into the room and he's got this briefcase and a really nice jacket and he smokes a pipe on his brakes and, you know, he's leading this lesson. I think he kicks his feet up on a chair at some point. I just have never felt more immediately respected by someone who had every right and wherewithal in the world to believe that he was better than me. You just, Andy, you just always, you understood that I had something to bring to that experience. And you treated that with the same respect that you treated the idea that you had something to bring to me. It was because of you that I felt so comfortable there. Were it not for some other chaotic circumstances that yeah. we won't talk about here due to non-disclosure agreements. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I might still be there today. Right. Um, but that's, that's what I've got for you, this idea well, of the hero's I, journey. Thanks for being a wizard. You know, I had my birthday last week and I would just say in the... You know, it's so close to my birthday. What a wonderful gift it is to hear that from you. It's a gift to know that what I set out to do in the world and with other human beings is is aligned with my intent. Mm. Um, so thank you. I, I don't know what else to say other than thank you in the most genuine and from the deepest part of my being. Thank you. <laughs> um, because it validates. That's the impact I want. I, I don't want to draw attention to me and lose the potential value or positive influence or good I can do in the world because I'm asserting me in there instead. Mm -hmm. But as a unconscious consequence of emphasizing what I think is important 
somewhere in that, I guess I get seen. And, <laughs> and, and so all I can say is thank you. That's equally yeah, validating. Don't, don't say too much more than that. It's, it's also just like coming off the trails of my birthday and I'm pretty much at capacity for love and appreciation. All right, fair enough. Yeah, I might, I might boil over. So, but it's nice when intention matches with impact, right? When someone else sees that you are doing the thing that you're trying to do. Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, I'm a good boy. I'm doing right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great feeling. You know, when you were talking about the hero's journey, I I can't help, and I can't take credit for it, and I'm going to give credit where credit is due, I can't help but think of the allegory of a dear friend and mentor, his name is Al, Mm -hmm. and uh, he helped me and continues to help me, uh, but he helped me at a time in my life where, you know, when the student is ready, the master appears, right? Mm -hmm. And Al appeared. And... The way that you described me as welcoming and loving and with that at the same time is is an adeptness and a competency that is just present and in the room and not flaunted and not leveraged to assert some sense of self. This is what Al brought to me. Al had a competence that I wanted. He had a way of inviting me to share and teach me that competence. He describes, when you're talking about the hero's journey, and I consider some of my own life experience and struggles, Al had a way of describing it as the distinction between the pioneers and the settlers. The pioneers have a strong need to go out into the unknown, to explore, to blaze trail, to set path for the future. But at some point, they come back to the settlement. Not all the settlers want to do that. But the settlers very often have things to offer the pioneer. They have comforts and home and relationship. Most pioneers were, are familiar with the experience of being alone. Like we hear an awful lot in leadership training about there are periods of time where leaders are going to be alone. Mm Mm-hmm. Pioneers have great experience being alone. Settlers are together all the time. One needs the other. And very often, pioneers are in the settlement longing to go blaze trail, but knowing that it's not the right time because the settlement needs them. Because there's a response. What's the value of pioneering if all of that knowledge and information is not going to be shared with the settlement and the settlement benefits? Mm -hmm. That's Al's story with that. That's how Al tempered me um, in ways that I'll always be grateful to him for. Mm. Yeah. There's an interesting thing happened in my mind when you uh, talked about pioneers and settlers, because of course that's a metaphor, but it's grounded in, you know, our, our actual reality, the ways that humans have throughout time and space wanted to explore the world. And it's, I think, difficult to see a metaphor for like pioneers and settlers without thinking about the West in itself. Oh, of course not. You can't. Um, yeah. You can't have it. So I hear, you know, I hear pioneers and settlers. And then I also hear like, who are the people who are already here? Where is the knowledge that came before? Right. Like when you are a pioneer, you are not just stepping outward into a barren world. Like you also, if you are living in a way that I believe is like ethically appropriate, you are seeking out a knowledge from what has come before, even if that knowledge doesn't have to do with any other humans and that knowledge is just the land and how it has evolved. You are not trying to superimpose your own world 
on the world you encounter, ideally, you are trying to bring something new to a place with significant history and experience the challenge of integrating them both. Um, and so many people in the history that I'm aware of have fallen really deeply short on one of those. Oh my things. goodness. Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, there are discussions going on right now in governance, uh, and thinking about how we as a world are going to evolve and managing risks of exponentially growing technology and population and climate, etc. The big thinkers right now are really revisiting the topics of sovereignty and, and community. And I've heard some very interesting commentary from, from the science community talking about the notion of sovereignty inextricably being linked to the relationships that have occurred before someone comes to this notion that sovereign thinking is truly independent of relationship or independent of the history on which it is based. I'm still grappling with all of those ideas myself, but I agree with the idea that you just proffered that this whole business of thinking that the pioneer is alone ideologically, physically, spiritually, is not consistent with what the pioneer would report. The pioneer learned their skills from somewhere and somebody. Pioneer had relationships that led them to identifying this sense of purpose in themselves to go do that. So the sovereignty is not independent of relationship. It's, in, it's, it's inextricably linked to it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly can't speak to it to the level of articulation that some of these other people can, but I certainly find it very, very fascinating. And I find what we do in, in the relationship that you and I share with one another and our shared interests in serving people the very best that we can in the interest of good and how the expressions of that can be so very different. But you and I find common ground all the time in so many areas and leverage that you know how how great the world has the potential to be as a result of of relationship you know yeah there's a quote that uh came to me by ways that i can't remember at this point uh and the idea of what power is gets tossed around uh quite a lot and i heard a quote that said power is a product of relationships uh, which really spoke to me for multiple reasons. One, it frames power as something that is not inherently good nor bad. It does not imply domination or coercion. It does not imply weakness or supplication. It just means that here is something that emerges naturally through the process of me relating to another person in the world. On my own, whatever power I might believe that I have is irrelevant. My power is something that is consistently enforced by a collective. Like if I believe that I have uh, the power to say whatever land I want is mine and I march right up to your backyard and I put up a chain link fence and I say uh, this 80 by 20 rectangle is mine, you're gonna laugh at me, right? Because although I can put up that fence, the power that I might have or that you might have is collectively enforced. You can call the cops and say, 
hey, there's this little punk asshole that thinks they're going to squat in my yard and they'll come out and remove me. Like when people make powerful claims to things like that, the power comes from the idea that other people see it and agree that that power is there. And there can be power through so many different spheres, right? There can be power through the borrowed authority, perhaps of like a police force or some military force that I mentioned. There can be power through wealth, money, which is another agreed upon thing. We all kind of just agree like, okay, money's a real thing. We can use it. You have a power of language. Uh, you are able to like manipulate something useful and agreed upon in the world in a way that other people can see and witness and agree upon. Uh, I don't, and I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think when people, sometimes people are like afraid of entering into power dynamics, for example. People don't like to touch the idea of power because it seems like inherently tricky or corrupted. But within the relationship between two people, I believe, or more than two people, there is always going to be some power that manifests from the result of that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have precisely the same perspective. I, I generally am aligned with the school of thought that before power comes competence. And competence, and this is by no means any invention of, of mine. What does this school of thought thinking come from? Well, that, that uh, relationships and hierarchies from the animal kingdom all the way to human beings is uh, and and choices and selections with them in them are anchored in expressions of competence competence how how well people do things and how people who are particularly more competent might have as you just said more power to wield in a particular area of operation uh, i think power becomes complicated when incompetence is as present in the wielding of power as competence. I think there can be vastly different outcomes associated to. So, you know, when you were talking about, you know, I've just decided to come to your backyard and stake out a 20-foot claim. It's mine. I think competence questions can arise out of that. Well, if we're living in a civil society and there are laws that... Mm -hmm you're not aware of, that could be a competence issue that led you to believe that you could just take this 20 foot, 20 square foot area of my backyard. But what if you did know the laws? And what if you were competent enough to articulate yourself in such a way that you were going to make a valid claim to this because your ancestors were actually on this land and you've constructed a legal argument that we're going to fight later in your claim of 20 square feet of my backyard. I don't know how well I'm making this example, but I, I, what I mean to say is that I think that power and competence are very, very tightly associated in the way that we perceive the power being wielded. What I'm seeing is that there are kernels of truth all over the place in these claims. And I see, for instance, our role in that and Snakes in the Garden and the other work that we do to see that people can come together and try to navigate those issues without bludgeoning each other to death. That's, that's I, at least for me, that's what I feel like my competence is. Okay, so you, wanna, you guys want to have an argument now about, uh, about power and competence? Okay, 
I'm going to mediate it so someone doesn't bleed someone else out. Or I'm going to give you both the skills to do it in a civil way. That's what I feel like my role is. As interesting as the power and competence or just the power discussion is, what's more interesting to me is the interpersonal interaction about that between two human beings. That's what runs through my veins. Sure. And I'm also not qualified to speak on any issue of like land or tribal sovereignty, which we're, <laughs> we're alluding to, or like the political process through which, you know, those rights are exacted, which, I mean, they deserve a mention because they're relevant. You have two individuals, you have two people, you have a group of individuals, you have a collective, you have a society, these things kind of spiral outward. And if you and I get into a debate over our you know, inherent sovereignty to the land, uh, there's multiple spheres of power that are interacting there. There's how one, of course, how well we can relate to one another and articulate our points. There is also this idea that, am I in a space where if I believe that I have an ancestral claim to the land, am I in a society or a collective that recognizes that power? Right. And my power is nonetheless, no matter how well I articulate my political, my, my lawful argument, it's still going to be dictated by the laws that have been collectively decided in that space. Um, I don't know if your power will be dictated to about that. Your ability to affect change as a result of your power is going to be regulated. Sure. Your power may not change. Your power, you may be a formidable advocate for this, this 20 foot area, you know, you formidable, Mm. but if the law isn't on your side about it, (laughs) you know, where is that ultimately going to end up? Yeah, you make an interesting differentiation between the power to, so example, the power to exact change and the power kind of within a deep belief, an unshakable certainty, a truth, a knowledge, something that lives within me, a passion, a zeal even, yeah. could be a kind of power. But yeah, what what is power? And if it can't exact change in the world in a way that you believe is meaningful, like to what extent does it really exist? If I believe that I'm powerful, but nobody around me has any sense of that, then I might not feel or actually be quite so powerful. The, the truth I've come to understand about power is that it seems to be most utilitarian when the wielder of it is not consciously or deliberately doing it. That's probably the, the best way for me to say it. It's almost like the score consciousness concept I learned from um, the great Len Cardinale, who was an Olympic archery coach that I worked with for a very long time on his staff. For many, many years, I had gone after shooting competitively, bows and arrows. Mm -hmm. And um, my best scores were acquired when I did not keep tabs on the point-to-point accrual during the game. Mm -hmm. In other words... um, seven or eight ends into a 12-end game. Uh, An end is a round of five arrows. And I'm at a particular score level at the seventh or eighth end, and I'm figuring out how many points I need to get to win this thing by the 12th end, which means how many bullseyes, how many four rings can uh, can I get away with when he saw his students getting into that, he would sit there and make sure that you couldn't look at the scorecard. And he would tell you, if you shoot a 25, which is five arrows in the bullseye, mm-hmm. and each arrow in the bullseye is five points. If you shoot a 25, you're going to know it. If you shoot less than that, try not even to, com- to compute it. Let me score it. 
and just don't think about your accrual. I always shot my best scores when I wasn't Mm -hmm. conscious of the game. In the same way someone who's bench pressing and struggling at a particular benchmark, let's say they're trying to get to a classic, which is 315 pounds, 345 pound plates on the side of an Olympic bar. I got close, 310. Um, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It takes a lot of food and a lot of discipline and yeah. a lot of eating. But anyway. My, my, my max bench was ever 95. <laughs> so um, the point uh, is there are times when people will do their personal best not knowing what's on the bar. They think it's 285 on the bar, but someone really put 290, 295, 300 on the bar. And someone says, what? It's like the the, <laughs> the mind is, you know, vi- vision begins where limits end. And that's not mine either. That's not mine either. Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so we have, let's let's take a break uh, on that notion. And we'll, we'll come back in just a minute. I've been, I've been kicking this around in my head and not getting anywhere with it. This idea that uh, focusing on the process, not the outcome or the destination, is what yields the best results. And I mean, I'm really curious if we have any, any kind of practical or tangible ways to integrate this philosophy. Like, how do we do that? Uh, in our day-to-day practice. Yeah. You know, when I hear that, I think of a, a quote. Uh, I'll do my best to recall it from mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama. To remain uninvolved in the things that are happening around us right now is indefensible. If the goal is noble, it doesn't matter if we reach the goal in our lifetime. Our responsibility is to strive and persevere and never give up. Mm. It's something like that. He Mm -hmm. says it with a lot more eloquence. But the basic idea is that the journey toward good and change and nobility is ongoing while I'm here and then after I'm gone. That that while the conditions of that are going to change, the the changelessness of the responsibility is ever-present in the lifetimes of so many generations, you know, before us and, and after us. When we did our first podcast, we, we used the anecdote of Musashi, and I have a great quote that I wanted to share mm-hmm. uh, to inspire some further discussion. And it has relevance to how we started this podcast today. Um, this is from the introduction of the Book of Five Rings, where Musashi pens the beginning of the entirety of the collection. I'll start with this excerpt. From my youth, my heart has been inclined toward the way of strategy. My first duel was when I was 13. I struck down a strategist of the Shinto school, one Arima Kihei. When I was 16, I struck down an able strategist, Tadashima Akiyama. When I was 21, I went up to the capital and met all manner of strategists never once failing to win in many contests. After that, I went from province to province, dueling with strategists of various schools, and not once failed to win, even though I had as many as 60 encounters. This was between the ages of 13 and 28 or 29. When I reached 30, I looked back on my past. 
The previous victories were not due to my having mastered strategy. Perhaps it was natural ability, or the order of heaven, or that other schools' strategy was inferior. After that, I had studied morning and evening, searching for the principle, and came to realize the way of strategy when I was fifty. Since then, I have lived without following any particular way. Thus, with the virtue of strategy, I practice many arts and abilities, all things with no teacher. To write this book, I did not use the law of Buddha or the teachings of Confucius, neither old war chronicles nor books on martial tactics. I take up my brush to explain the true spirit of this itchy school, as it is mirrored in the way of heaven and Quanon. The time of the night of the tenth day of the tenth month of the hour of the tiger, somewhere between 3 and 5 a.m. Hmm. All things with no teacher now. Mm. Heavy. Mm-hmm. Heavy. And this is so consistent with so much of Bruce Lee's message. And I think the messages of, of so many um, people who come to a place in their life where they recognize the meaningfulness of relationships and the meaningfulness of schools of thought, and then they forget everything, so <laughs> to speak, and just be. And yeah. they're the sum total of all that. It's, it's some kind of really beautiful integration. It's a process of integration. It makes me think of uh, the as above, so below, when he mentions that the way that his brush moves when he paints also mimics the way of heaven, also mimics a quantum physicality. It's an integration of the similarity between all these principles in the world and the, in the intentional moving of your way of being in accordance with those principles. And honestly, it makes me think of when I first learned about physics, when I first learned about biology, when I first learned these uh, ways that dictated this is the way the world is going, the way life emerges and so on. And the power that was brought to me from that realization, you know, when you are playing any game, even if it's a game as simple and complicated as staying alive in a difficult world, being able to know the rules doesn't necessarily allow you to bend them, but it makes you move more effectively within them and gives you a type of power that you wouldn't have if you didn't understand them. Yeah, power over self so that when the snakes in the garden are out, and they're moving around. I don't need to feel powerless or disempowered. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about power earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what you and I are about are the consideration of all of these things that we've been talking about in relationship to their impact on our state. Mm-hmm. And if we're experiencing life day to day in a way that is discontenting. I mean, minimally discontenting. It can be a lot worse, and it is a lot worse for so many, so many people. How does one find contentment? Mm-hmm. How does one find? How does one find contentment in a life and during a day where someone is screaming in your face about not having a mask on, or why didn't you put your mask on? Uh, screaming in your face about your political affiliation. Screaming in your face about where you stand on vaccines. How do we navigate these issues in in ways where one's peace and contentment can be prioritized? Yeah, I, I have a practice, uh, a daily practice where if I'm being my best self in the morning, I'll take an inventory of 
what I need most, what I want from that day. And it's not like, oh, I really want a hot bowl of curry, which I do right now. It's uh, what are the deep core needs that I feel that I want in my life. And more often than not, I've seen ease coming a lot coming up a lot for me. I want peace and I want ease and I want structure. My need for those things never goes away, but the amount that I have those does change. And yeah, absolutely. If someone is either deeply dysregulated for a reason I do or don't empathize with, or if uh, maybe more significantly, someone is challenging my internal sense of belief and rightness and conviction, that is very, that is not something that I consider to be easy. I sort of have two, well, I'm sure I have more than two choices, but the way that I see it is I have several choices to maintain my personal sense of ease. There is a hard path in which I can try to integrate your worldview into my own. And maybe that hard path might lead me to some greater sense of human completion of this thing seems different from the way that I approach the world, you know, I have to do some some self work now to hold this truth and still hold my own. Or there is just the the slightly easier path, which may also result in ease and peace of just like, I don't need to accept your truth in order to continue living my own, but I do need to find some core truth in our relationship, something, some peace where we overlap that I can pin onto and move forward. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's such a fundamental principle to Ken Wilber and integral theory and this whole idea of two truths that on their face don't dovetail or integrate well, but both need to be held. Mm -hmm. Wow, if there were a time where that kind of day-to-day -day responsibility has ever been in front of people, it's right now. We are so polarized because I think at whether it's due to capability uh, or competence or more precisely put a lack thereof. I've never seen a time where people seem to be so unwilling to hold more than one truth, unwilling to hold more than one truth. They want this one and it makes it so easy because it, it influences the worldview. If you only have to have one, it's, it's, that's one path to ease. That is. Believing that there is only one way. Yeah. And, you know, can I find ease in dis-ease? <laughs> you know? Um, yes. Is, that's, I think that's what we're really talking about here. I mean, we're using words to toss these ideas around, but I, I really do think that I, I know for me, I've, I have found greater periods of ease through the discomfort of pressing into dis-ease. Mm -hmm. I'll press into it so I can understand whether it's heterodoxy or um, uh, integral, more sides of the issue or problem. The more that I can absorb more sides or issues of the problem, somehow after that is done to a sufficient degree there is an ease that can come over me. You can tell that you're not from the Pacific Northwest. Why? <laughs> uh, well, I think, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of just bullshitting you, but like there is, you know, certainly a regional philosophy about how to approach conflict. 
at its base. You know, I don't hear many people who come from this space talking about, I'm comfortable in conflict. I want to lean into it. I want to understand when someone disagrees with me. I want to try to encompass more complex truths. Uh, when people are being honest, it seems like they're really saying like, I'm not comfortable with conflict. I never learned how to be comfortable with it. And the way that I deal with it is kind of by avoiding it. And there's an interesting paradox that occurs there. If I have a conflict with you and my strategy to feel at ease is to avoid it, in my view, and this is my opinion here, I'm giving you power. I'm saying that yeah. my view of things is so fragile that it cannot even approach your truth without being threatened. That I am so threatened yes. by your living in the world that I have to get the fuck away from this or my entire identity will crumble. I, I will say this, Lev. I think half of the censure problem that we're seeing play out all over the place right now, people being canceled, is that, is precisely that, where people feel unable while they may know more than they say, they feel unable to articulate to a degree necessary what the situation or the moment in time requires in order for them to get to a place of, of at least feeling like they belong in the moment. Their inability to do so for any number of reasons either causes that other person to be canceled or they run away. Then there's an interesting, I, I feel the need to kind of prize apart this like sense of like cancellation or ostracization. Yeah. So like there is an idea of that where you present to me a concept that is threatening to me. And I believe your concept is so threatening to my sense of identity or worldview that I want to shut you up. There's yeah. also, there's also though, like if we continue on that path, there's this idea of cancellation or ostracization or what, whatever you'd like to call it. That is maybe you are unsafe in a different way, not just to my identity, but maybe you are physically dangerous, right? There's, there's different senses of danger in which we might want someone to stop what they are doing. Th that's completely reasonable. Or their beinghood to be removed from the collective circumstance in which we exist. And this is maybe a hot take, but the thing that comes to mind for me is prisons. Yeah. What do we do with the people who we have deemed so dangerous or so threatening to the law and way of life that we have collectively established? What do we do with those people? How do we treat them? And I think that, you know, if you see cancellation of like, get the fuck out of my community, get the fuck out of my airspace, get the fuck out of this, like prison is a pretty extreme example of that, of like, we can't do anything else with you. We can't tolerate your beinghood, so you need to go over here. And there is a, a philosophy of punishment that exists behind all of those things, in my mind. Yeah, when I was talking about censorship and cancellation, I wasn't talking about felonious behavior. I was talking about things to a far less degree. I do agree, though, that on a continuum, there's something to be learned about how we treat people in the extremes that can be applied in other circumstances. And you've known me for a little while now. I've been an extremely known as an extremely strong advocate for, let's say, least restrictive interventions when people are presenting anger and aggression in those settings, whether it's prison or jail or total confinement uh, on a civil basis. 
What is it you called it earlier when you were responding to my idea of power? You said there was some competency. Competence. Yeah, there's yeah. this idea of competence. And I think those same principles apply in both of those spaces. Oh, God, yeah. Like if I'm, you know, talking to you and you bring up something that I find like absolutely wild and like completely out of the sphere of what is appropriate. I, I can't think of an example that doesn't dig me deeper into a political hot take right now. You present to me an idea and because of my own lack of competence, yes. my response is self-defense, which is to push you away. And I see that taking place. And for the record, for the, the listeners, I am in favor of prison abolition not simply reform. We can dig into that later. Yeah. But to me, that seems like a great space of a total lack of competence. We like to believe that a prison is an industry, what do we call it? Corrections. The very idea of corrections. You have been incorrect. We will fix you and make you whole and proper so you can continue in society. Anyone who has been inside of a prison as either an employee or a, a participant who has been imprisoned recognizes... <laughs> that correction in any sense of the word does not take place. And I certainly don't want that to move to brainwashing where we suddenly make everyone believe and act in a way that is totally in accordance with society, but we're missing something. We're missing this like human element of like, you are acting and believing in a way that meets your needs somehow. How can we allow you to continue to meet your innate human needs and still function around other people. Part of that is maybe you need to be a little less threatening. And part of that is maybe I need to be less threatened. Well, Stephen Poor just said it. You know, if you want to make the world a better place, this is the founder of polyvagal theory. Yeah. If you want to make the world a better the, place, the start popular, by making yeah. people feel safer. I wonder if you would have the same worldview on prisons if you were in Norway. Uh, part of the problem is the definition. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think the value of a structured setting that's isolated from the overall population because the behaviors that the people in the facility have presented are so serious that there is genuine public safety risk. I think the idea that there's a place that those people can go to engage in let's say for a better word than correction, rehabilitation, or in some cases, habilitation, with the end state in mind that they're going to reintegrate the community. I will say in defense of the corrections industry, that's where the industry in our country is with it right now. I think there are other systems of corrections that use similar terminology, but their expressions of those environments are far would be far more attractive to you. There are absolutely prisons in our world, not in this country, that make what we do in the United States appear progressive compared to Europe. I mean, there sure. are people in psychiatric facilities in other countries that are still mechanically restrained to posts outside the building with metallic devices. This, this goes on today. Yeah. So, you know, we're certainly not going to solve those problems, I think, anytime soon. But I think you and I taking our place in trying to raise awareness about these questions. And I love where this part of the dialogue went as we're discussing the, the experience of feeling threatened 
and the experience of safety. Right. I do agree that that is at the core of it, absolutely at the core of it. I guess for me in my journey, what I have found very helpful in the capacity to feel safe enough in almost any circumstance is almost like what Musashi just said. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to familiarize myself with all the schools. I'm going to test myself in those environments and then I'm just going to be. I, f I can identify with that journey. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the idea of Really learning rather than testing, learning, mm. and then forgetting and doing, um, yeah. you know? I see that. Yeah. And I, and I do agree with you. If there's nothing that strikes me as inappropriate about the concept of rehabilitation, as an end goal, I think that's really awesome. Uh, but yeah, w the ways in which that's executed definitely, yeah, doesn't, doesn't always play out in the how I see my ideal world happening. And you know, my own internal sense of safety and my own internal sense of competence is also going to lead me to different conclusions about what behavior is too extreme. Oh, yeah. Right. If I see someone on the street who is, you know, muttering or gesticulating and acting wildly, I might see that as a very extreme behavior. I might see uh, someone, you know, stealing a cartload of groceries from the Safeway as an extreme and socially threatening behavior. My sense of safety and my competence is what dictates my impression on those, those behaviors and by extension those people. It is difficult for any human all of the time to separate a behavior from a person. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's another, that's another piece of that. Por and I think, I'm sorry, please. Please, no, go on. No, 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 I was, I was just saying, Porges has really got a great model of articulating these ideas that you're talking about in the context of interpersonal neurobiology. And by no means am I an expert at all on any of that. I just find the narratives on how he and his cadre of researchers, how they articulate the brain structures around how this works. And simply put, you know, that and a guy that we know who also speaks about this in a very accessible way is the great Tony Blower. He's known for 30 years in expressing this in the, in the use of force world. Dr. Porges describes it this way. When your limbic system is active, imagine it at the base of a triangle, on a point of a triangle. And if I were to go up into the brain, as you follow the angles of the sides of the triangle, what and you're imagining an inverted triangle, right? With a point it's a triangle down up, yeah, and the flat side facing up. Okay, right. As you go up into the higher brain structures and higher cortex structures, you get greater diversity of thought, greater diversity of function. The closer to the point of the triangle you go, you get reduced diversity of expression. And what we know about the limbic system and the sympathetic nervous system and the fight-flight system, and Laura Moss frames this beautifully with the National Anger Management Association, the experience of the human being is that it's me versus you. Me versus you. Our job as people who respond to crisis states in human beings when their limbic brain is very, very active, what we know is that when your limbic brain is active, those higher functions of evolved brain shut down or diminish considerably. It takes a lot of work to assist someone in feeling safe enough to re-engage those structures 
so that greater diversity of thought and expression can occur. If you're going down to the tip of the triangle that's on the ground, that's the limbic brain. As you go up the sides of the triangle toward the upside down part of the triangle that's <laughs> mm -hmm. facing up now, that's where you get this much wider range of diverse expression. I talk about that because it's, I wonder, wouldn't it be amazing if we could measure in these interpersonal conflicts at the times that they're happening, how much people are in their limbic brain mm. arguing their point, as opposed to in their higher cortical structures and with their limbic brain is less active because they feel less threatened, because they do generally feel safer. And as a result, they can engage in more learning. They can engage in more appreciation. And what we know in our line of work, Lev, is that we render more influence on another human being when we model or present whatever we have to present in the moment from a state of evolved brain. Right. That's our mirror neurons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very, it's, it takes a lot of work in someone else's emergency for it not to be your emergency. Someone who wants to stick me in the throat with a pen now is far less threatening than it was 15 years ago. And the work to get there has been a product of acquiring understanding and learning and knowledge and not just academic, you know, in the physical, in experience. Can I be here in the moment with this person who wants to throttle me and try to jumpstart their evolved brain? The answer is yes. We have a capacity as human beings to do this. Of course, yeah, of course. We all, we all have a capacity for self-control. And I think it makes a lot of sense to try and practice these things on a smaller scale. Uh, like I think when, so I went to Codependence Anonymous. <laughs> yeah, Coda. I knew uh -huh. a lot, couple of people from there years ago. Yeah, and one of the things that was so novel and so significant to me is that we were when you are in the process of sharing, uh, there is a rule that says you may not respond to anyone else's share, not to empathize, not to share a story that's related. You listen with all the attention within you and you move forward. And that experience was so powerful and oh, so integral yeah. in helping me understand how to relate to anyone who's even in a minor crisis. It could be just like, oh my God, I'm stressed out. Like my partner broke up with me or I had this day or I popped a tire on the highway and my heart is pounding. Right. It is my duty to myself and my own values and what I believe is helpful to not get wrapped up emotionally in that person's circumstance. I will be not only more helpful to them, but more helpful to myself if I just first recognize, ooh, I have a little bit of an urge to respond to this. Yeah. But that person doesn't need my response. That person really is asking for, their brain and body is asking for me to be present as a person, as a That's calm, what they're asking, right. structure, unshaken by their world. If And you see this when you interact with kids all the time, right? A kid is running along and trips and falls flat in his face. That kid is going to be way more upset if the parent rushes up to them. It's like, oh my God, are you okay? Ah, bah, 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 bah. You got to walk up to that kid. You got to check him out. You got to give him a hand up. You got to look him in the eye and say, hey, you're okay. I'm here. Talk to me. And you get up and you keep walking. And that person is going to understand that, oh, just because I'm having a crisis in the world right now, that doesn't mean the whole world is a crisis. The world can be calm. The world can go on. I can go on. And as far as practical things where the process is more important than the outcome, 
most of the people that I meet on a day-to-day basis, and I work retail right now, you know, I'm just a tiny insignificant speck in the scope of their lives, right? If they're having a fucking day, I'm not even going to waste the time thinking that I might have a meaningful outcome on their life. Like it doesn't really materially matter to me. And I know that I can't impact that. And that's important because that's something that helps me from getting wrapped up into it, which helps me stay calm and measured and reasonable. And because of that process that I engage in of like, ooh, something intense is happening. Am I breathing right now? Where am I? Who am I? I am different. I am still here. They're over there. Because of that, that maybe that does impact their situation. Oh, you know, you can, you can bet money on that. Have, have I told and I you won't because I'm broke. Oh. <laughs> have, have I have I told you the lighthouse allegory? Have no. I given you that one? No. Let's. Do so, you want to finish on the lighthouse allegory? I do. Okay. I do. I use it a lot lately. It's one that I've developed as as I've gotten into the world of boating, which Ooh. I love. I love. The Pacific Northwest and the Puget Sound, it's the best boating ever. Do you have a sailboat? I have a I have a trawler. I have a nineteen eighties forty-one foot trawler, which is like the equivalent of an eighties Winnebago on the water. (laughs) It's very comfortable. It's big enough for the family and it's slow. Seven knots. That's it. So you have to watch the tide and sail with the tide. Sail is still the term we use when we get underway, but I have two big, loud diesel motors. It's good on fuel. and Such a dad. Obvious dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's got a nice ass. galley, and it's got a couple of staterooms, and it's got a lot of old wood on it, and I love it. It's got a lot of character. But it, it's boating that kind of gave to me this allegory when I consider in boating what we refer to as the aids to navigation and when we consider as we consider self-regulation. A lighthouse is an aid to navigation that is always on land at the water's edge. It's generally made of reinforced concrete. It's generally powered to be a beacon that others must navigate to, to bring ships in the harbor to safe states of port. That lighthouse has to do its job in calm conditions and in stormy conditions when the waves are breaking over the breakwater and smashing up against the lighthouse. The lighthouse doesn't move. Imagine if the lighthouse were on a floating dock that moved around with the tide and the current. Mm. Nobody would be able to navigate to it. It Mm -hmm. would be like two insects in a large room, one bullet trying to hit another bullet, one fly trying to run into another fly, it would be close to impossible for the two to connect. And if they did connect, they're connecting in space. They're not connecting where the lighthouse is anchored, Mm -hmm. founded. We don't have aids to navigation like lighthouses that float around. They're stationary. It's the responsibility of the responder or any person in someone else's emergency to be unmoved for a number of reasons. You're the place that they have to navigate to. We talked Mm -hmm. about mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. We talked about limbic brain state. I can't assist someone in engaging a capacity for self-regulation and evolved brain if I'm not in my evolved brain. That means I have to be a lighthouse evolved brain in a storm. How do I do that? 
Well, I do things like Musashi along the way. I learn. I walk a path of understanding self and world. I try to absorb as much as I can so I can find within it a capacity to be, as you would say, at ease, no matter what the circumstances. In Christian theology, that would be through grace and through acceptance of the Savior. In other theology and ancient literature, that would be found in selflessness uh, or maybe void or various states of enlightenment. The point being at the end of the day, practically, I can't change anything in the world unless I am the change I want to see. And if I'm, if I'm the change that's noble and good and true, I think that is contagious. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough of it now in the world and we need more of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a beautiful metaphor. And really is so, I would say, easy to integrate, but moves very easily into integration. If I can hold in my mind that what I want from this situation, like that I can show what I want from this situation, that I can't change this person, but I can change the way that I'm showing up for them. I can model exactly the way that I want them to be rather than respond to their chaos that will help me in any moment. And I can even, and I'm a little hokey, like I'll, I meditate, I'll visualize. I can visualize myself as the lighthouse. Like I can spend yeah. 10, 30, 45 seconds just imagining like wh- what materials am I made from? Like what is the shore upon which I am grounded? And they do a lot of, you know, even in therapy, I do a lot of grounding exercises. My therapist will ask me, are your feet on the ground? Are you pressing your feet into the ground? Do you realize that you are here and that you are stable? Yeah. And that's one of those quick, like, uh, that sounds stupid. I don't think that's going to work, but man. Oh, you bet it does. Yeah. Laura does that all the time (laughs) with people walking 20 steps and deliberately concentrating on the feeling and the experience and observing the feeling of their feet on the ground. How grounding that really, Mm -hmm. really is. Yeah, they call it that for a reason. Yeah. 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 Oh, I think was, we're there. Friend. That was a beautiful thing to end on. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing Thank you. that. <laughs> thank you. And uh, look forward to doing this again. Yeah. Uh, and very thank soon. you to all of our listeners. If you're just joining us or if you're listening again, we really appreciate you being here. Indeed. And thank you so very much. Please uh, like, follow, share. And uh, offer us your feedback. Please. We're very interested in that. We do read it. and We care about what you have to say almost as much as we care about what we have to say. <laughs> and both of us are on uh, the social media platforms. On Instagram, I'm andyprisco.ccis. Uh, I'm also uh, on LinkedIn. Oh, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to share my LinkedIn because it is not a reflection of who I accurately and truly am. And neither will I share, I think at this point, my Instagram. Fair uh, enough. Send me the feedback. Yeah. I'll make sure Lev gets it. I, I yeah. don't know if I, there's a lot of pressure to examine the way that you are and how that appears in the universe. Right. And uh, maybe we can know. talk about that on the next one. Shit. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll figure something out. Yeah, I'll figure something out. All right. A little feedback form or some shit. Bye, all.